We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. There's kind of two main messages that come out to me. One is obviously the importance of missionary work and how the Lord wants it to happen to the point where he even had them pause their translation of the Bible. They were working on the Joseph Smith translation and he kind of says, all right, we've got some dissent. We've got these things being published in newspapers. Ezra Booth, who was an, a former member, is now going out, writing these letters and putting them in the newspaper. And instead of just saying, oh, well, everyone's entitled to their opinion or whatever, they're kind of like, okay, we need to stop everything and respond. And also, we need to double down on our missionary efforts. It's kind of like, it's it's time to start getting serious about establishing ourselves as having a voice. Because a lot of times it seems like people would go out and say things and it's kind of like, well, that person doesn't isn't involved with us anymore and so so be it but the lord is saying you know we're not going to allow this guy to publicly be berating the church in in the media it'd be as if someone went on it's still local so it'd be like if someone went on salt lake city the salt lake tribune or or ksl or something and started bashing on president nelson um, at this point the church has an established voice and so the church would probably be like, well, here's where we stand on this. And if you want more information, go to churchofjesuschrist.org, you know. But back then that didn't exist. And so it was like, this guy's just calling us out in public like that. And it, we need to have some sort of response. And it's interesting how the Lord uh, encourages them to respond to that. Because it's not necessarily in the way that I think people would think immediately off the bat, hey, we should we should fight back. You know, it didn't really come out that way. I, th I thought about how it's important in congregations and in public that when someone is called, that they are sustained. And yeah. when someone is released, it's also done through a vote of thanks. And it's a public action. And one of the talks a long time ago was talking about the importance of sustaining people. And it was also part of it was to be united and to know who to you know help and all that stuff. But the other part is to know who who were the individuals that had the keys and that are now can represent the church on assignment. And I think at this time, Ezra Booth was doing a lot of damage because he, he did hold a high esteem and rank among the saints. And now he could be leading people away due to the fact that people may still think that he is in good standing with the church. Right. And um, and I think in that sense, I think it was important for the prophet and the brethren at the time to uh, let the, the let the church know 
that this man doesn't speak in behalf of the church anymore. Yeah, one one thing that in uh, section 71, starting in verse 7, it says, Wherefore, confound your enemies, call upon them to meet you both in public and in private, and inasmuch as ye are faithful, their shame shall be made manifest. Wherefore, let them bring forth their strong reasons against the Lord. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, there is no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And if any man lifts his voice against you, he shall be confounded in my own, own due time. So the first part is confound your enemies. And I looked at, you know, what what exactly does the word confound mean? The first thought that I have when I think of confound is confundir, right, from Spanish, which is confuse, uh, to confuse your enemies. And then I looked at the, the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. And the first definition is that in there is to mingle and blend different things so that their forms or natures cannot be distinguished to mix in a mass or crowd so that individuals cannot be distinguished. And then the second one, to throw into disorder. And the third one, to mix or blend as to occasion a mistake of one thing for another. Or to perplex, to disturb the apprehension by indistinctness of idea or words. Basically, I think what he's saying is, it's not necessarily go confuse your enemies. I think what it is, is go bear testimony. Go share your testimony. And if you share an honest, true testimony about the gospel, no matter what they bring against you, eventually they won't have anything else to say. And I find it interesting. He's not telling them, even though he's saying to meet you both in public and in private. He's not saying, hey, go Bible bash these guys. Go go put them to shame. Go call them out and make them look like fools. He's not saying that. He's saying go basically share your testimony with them or instead of fighting fire with fire go fight fire with water just go douse that thing and then it does bring up shame but it says inasmuch as ye are faithful their shame shall be made manifest they themselves will feel it people will see it in them you don't have to shame people right i'm not telling my my representatives to go make people feel stupid i'm saying go testimony douse the flames and you'll see that they themselves recognize they're wrong yeah, I as I thought about that, I thought similarly as you're saying that it's almost like the confound is more like I will nullify their right. their threat, meaning, you know, it, it they, there are several scriptures where it says that your enemies won't take advantage, have advantage over you. There there's scriptures in the Book of Mormon over and over again where where we're seeing, especially in the war chapters, that that the Lord prepares his saints for physical war, very similarly to the way he prepares them for spiritual war, you know, to fortify their strongholds. And and I really like the, the part that said um, in verse 9, section 71, where it says, there is no weapon that is formed against you that shall prosper. Well, I, I think a lot about that scripture where it says, you know, I should look it up. In the Book of Mormon, it talks about they're they're drunken with blood and they they fall upon their own sword type of thing. And um, and I see, especially in our day, so many people who are out to attack people on a sense that they are right or they're hanging on or defending some sort of principle or virtue. But then you give it a couple years and you look behind the curtain and you find out that they themselves are rotten of even a worser task or a worse hypocrisy, you know, and that's kind of the world that this kind of battle leads to is where 
people are trying to cover up their mistakes while pointing out other people's mistakes and doing as publicly as possible so you can just like send like the social social herd mentality to go devour those people well like you said like the lord is saying that's not in in essence that's not his way you know i'm gonna you're gonna act in such a way that they won't have any power over you like it, it's not gonna matter it's not the lord's way to fight fire with fire you know and we see that through zion's camp we see that through uh in the book of mormon many many times where it was they, they were only led out of captivity once they turned their hearts to the Lord and they were faithful, not they were given all sorts of superiority military arms, blasted everybody out of the way, and then they were humble and faithful. You know, it doesn't work in that direction. And I think in our day, I, this is very interesting to me because the Lord in the Book of Mormon and in the Doctrine of, and in all the scriptures, it seems like he's constantly preparing us for you are you sure you want to be a disciple because being a disciple is going to call upon you the ridicule the the judgments you're going to be under the microscope people are going to try to use whatever methods to de derail you and and invalidate your faith and he says but knowing that they have these weapons and even these secret combinations the best thing for you is to just leave the command live the commandments you live the commandments and that's the best battle you can give them. Now we can get carried away in thinking we we have to meet fire with fire, you know, and things like that. And there probably are situations where that's the case, but that's very rare, and it's hardly ever the first answer, you know. It's yeah. like with anything in life, you know, our we have to be so careful that we do it at the right time and the way the Lord wants. Anyway. But, well, also I think we hear lots of times in the book of mormon and throughout the scriptures you know the lord is like don't worry about the consequences these people will face vengeance is mine i will take care of that Good. you you just need to do what i've asked you need to be christ-like you need to share your testimony let me take care of what happens to them so there this brings me to one thing dude i have to say this this guy <laughs> he spoke up uh, I think it was last week or the week before, one of those weeks when we were talking about uh, forgiveness and that if you do not forgive, then the greater sin is on you. And he basically, man, he blew my mind with what he said because he, he said that he's thought about it for a long time. Why not forgiving the person is worse than the actual act, which is wrong. It could be very wrong if it's, you know, terrible thing that they've done. And he said, and, and the way he put it, he said, when we for the the act of forgiving and judging someone is Christ's role. Right, it's right. why he had the atonement. It's why he paid for our sins. And when we choose to not forgive someone, we are putting ourselves above Christ and saying we know better. And when he said that, I thought like my brain exploded, man. It was just like one of those things where I was like, that makes sense why the greater sin would be upon us because we are saying that no i'm not going to let christ whom has a tone for everybody be the judge i'm going to continue to be the judge and in that scenario we're putting ourselves above christ and that's a greater you know and i was like wow you know but it's kind of like this a little bit in this sense where you know we have enemies and i, I think we have to be comfortable 
that we're not going to be popular. We're not going to be the norm. It's like, how many times do we have to be told you're a peculiar people? And the funny thing is, it's like the more truth you are to what you are, it almost seems like the the less hostile people are. And more like at least I found people are more willing to accept me when I'm honest about how I am and how I feel. But anytime I show any sense of hypocrisy or mm-hmm. grandstanding on my religion or my principles, then I'm quickly even more shunned and, and, and an easy target. Right, right. I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, it no. does. I think people appreciate when you're genuine and when they can detect that you're being facetious in any way, especially when it comes to your beliefs, then it becomes, oh, you're just a hypocrite. And you're being judgmental of everyone around you because you think you're better than everyone. I, I don't know. When, when I see when I see these examples, I think really what the Lord's telling us is there's going to be a lot of people that talk bad about the church. There's going to be a lot of people that point out um, people in the church that have made mistakes, very public things, or even stuff that we have ourselves done that are maybe not completely in agreement with the preaching of the gospel. And what we need to do is say, okay. I'm I'm just going to share my testimony when possible, be a good representative of the Lord and whenever I can and confronting these people or trying to fight with them. You know, maybe if it's a situation where they're saying just flat out things that aren't true, then I might say, well, actually, I'm a member of that church and that's not true. And this is what we believe. That's totally fine. You don't need to just let that go. But not in a confrontational or aggressive way where you're like, you're an idiot and, you know, because that won't that doesn't bring the spirit. All of this has to be done with the guidance of the spirit. Right. I've seen individuals speak up correctly and with authority and not being grandstanding or, or and they're not having to be verbose. And I've seen the opposite where you feel like you have to fight. And it's such a dishonor that you have besmirched the, the good name of our prophet. And I must you go Puerto Rockwell on you. And it's like, <laughs> no, in verse in section 72, I thought this was really interesting. In verse three, where he tells uh, the stewards, he said, it is required of the Lord at every hand, every steward to give an account of his stewardship, both in time and in eternity. For he who is faithful and wise in time is accounted Worthy to inherit the mansions prepared for him by the Father. Um, I thought this was really interesting. I don't, I don't know if we're moving on. Sorry, I'm just like jumping. But um, uh, I think this is when what's his name gets called to be a bishop. Uh, yeah. So well, up until this point, they only had one bishop, Edward Partridge. He was the only one. And I think we're getting to the point where the saints are. There's enough of them, and they're also spread out enough that it's necessary to call a second one. And so Newell K. Whitney is called to be the second bishop ever. And that's why he's kind of going through, here's what bishops do, and here's their role and responsibility. No, I, I just thought it was interesting that that he highlights, well, he points out that they need to, you need to be accountable in time and in eternity, meaning right now and later. I don't know. I There's something about that that I found fascinating that we, we, there, that accountability, there are some things that we wait, like um, like restoration or 
or forgiveness or, or things like that, like judgment, you know, certain things that we put off to like, we'll sort this out in eternity. But when it comes to our calling and being accountable for it, we're expected to be accountable right now, right now yeah. for what we're doing. The other part that was interesting, he starts getting into the duty of the bishop to keep the Lord's storehouse, to receive the funds of the church in this part of the vineyard, to take an account of the elders as before has been commanded and to administer to their wants. Who shall pay for that which they receive in as much as they have wherewith to pay? That it that this also may be consecrated to the good of the church, to the poor and the needy. And then verse 13, and he who hath not wherewith to pay, an account shall be taken and handed over to the bishop of Zion, who shall pay the debt out of that which the Lord shall put into his hands. I find that really interesting. And I think that this is a, a principle that has been passed down until today. And that is that your financial means should never prohibit you from access to the gospel. And that goes for missionary service. A lot of people can't afford to pay the amount to send a missionary into the mission field. And the church has said, don't let that be a barrier. If you're willing, you're called to the work, we'll take care of it. Don't let that be the barrier that prevents you from serving. Don't let that be the barrier from uh, joining and from participating in the gathering of Israel. We'll find a way. And I think that that's really interesting that it's basically like if someone wants to be a member of the church, if someone wants to participate in all of this, and for whatever reason, they don't have the means to either serve or to take care of a missionary or or whatever it may be, that the Lord's saying monetary means won't get in the way. You don't have the money to buy your own temple clothes or whatever. That shouldn't be a barrier for you to go and serve in the temple. We'll find a way. You know, like there's nothing. Money will never prohibit you from participating in the, in the gospel. And that that's a tremendous thing because a lot of times money has been the very thing that has dictated someone's status in religion. Whether you buy a pew or your donation to a church and you get certain this or that uh, benefits. And the Lord's saying, that's not how my church will be run. My church will be based on your willingness to serve. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think um, that's similar to tithing. I mean, sometimes you can view tithing as like, I've even heard it referenced jokingly as as like a membership due, you know? Yeah, your subscription fee. <laughs> yeah. But I've talked to enough bishops and I've been assistant clerk where there is the accounting that is given, whether you're a full-time peer, is an accounting of you being asked, hey, are you a full-time peer? At no point is there like, well, let's take out the chart and the calculator and calculate what, you know, like, no, because everybody's different. And really the promise is between you and the Lord. The Lord knows what you've done and you know what you've done. And the bishop's just saying, hey, uh, it's my responsibility as steward over this to ask you, are you a full tithe payer? And you can say, even if you're not, you can say, yeah. And then that that lie is between you and the Lord, right? The bishop's not going to know. He doesn't know your salary and your income and your this and that. It doesn't matter to him. He He's only asking so that you have a chance to report. If, if you're looking at it the wrong way, if it feels like a fee, you might as well not pay it. Yeah. You know, it's not doing you any good. Yeah. It's the same thing as fast. 
going hungry, you might as well just eat because there's no point in doing what you're doing. Yeah. Anyway, that's exactly. But I, I did find that the the word in sample is on here again. Like. Yeah. And I was wondering, like, there are several phrases, well, times now where the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenants has said an example. And uh, where he's trying to describe how something would work. But also tells them this is just an example. Right. And think about it and then ad- adapt it to your situation. Seek revelation all that. And I thought it's very similar because it's in the New Testament over and over the Lord would teach by parable. Right. And I think to them in those days, those parables were examples because they were very much literal things that they did. Like, hey, if you're a traveler down this road and you get robbed by robbers. You know, there's a parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, here's an example I'm giving you. If <laughs> in this scenario, if this were to happen, you would assume that the people walking by that were these notable, you know, Pharisees and, 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 and Sadducees that they would stop and help. But no, it was the Samaritan, the one that actually cared for his neighbor the most, you know, and all these things. And I, I don't know. I thought that was interesting that, that maybe the Lord, these are almost like, not parables, but... Uh, Kind of a very similar structure. So the next part, really interesting, is when they start differentiating, or the Lord wants to correct some of the uh, thinking around the law of Moses. You know, mm. that um, it's it's really uh, interesting because he in section seventy four, in verse one, it says, "For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife." And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Elsewhere, your children are clean, but now they are holy. Now, in the days of the apostles, the last circumcision was had among the Jews, and there was a great contention among the people, and blah, 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 blah. Um, so one thing that I that I thought about that, the beginning of that, when it talks about the husband and the wife, and I thought how true that is of marriage, of how one of you may have a strength, that the other doesn't and as long as you're able to yield to that strength then you're both sanctified you both become better and in that it it takes a lot of humility and unity to be able to acknowledge that hey i may not be the best organizer and my spouse is and they're asking us to organize these things or live after this fact well, maybe we should do that, or I'll I'll, I'll support that, you know. Right. And likewise, I've seen where sometimes you're going through trials, and one of you can panic, and the other one can feel more calm about it, and just having the unity to be able to yield to whomever has. It's almost like the strength can shift. Who who who's strong at the moment? And you yield to the one that has the talent or the faith at the moment and you both will be okay yeah, that's that's very true i think that's happened to me lots of times where there's moments when i know that i have to be the strong one and there's other moments when i feel like what i just feel a little bit wavering and my wife will be like no we're good we can handle this we'll get through it and it you you rely on that and you know the the scripture in first corinthians it's it doesn't talk specifically about this but it says in the in the joseph smith revelation book This explanation clarifies a New Testament verse, which historically has been an important passage for justifying infant baptism. Like the Book of Mormon, this document rejects the need for infant baptism by explaining that little children are made clean through the atonement of Jesus Christ without baptism. 
Although it's possible that questions regarding 1 Corinthians 7.14 or infant baptism prompted this explanation, the precise circumstances are unknown. And it's interesting because this is one of those doctrinal things that uh, kind of keeps coming up in different ways because there are so many questions around when is the right time to baptize someone and how do we approach the the original sin, the transgression of Adam and Eve? And what what if I want to make sure that my children are saved in the eternities? I think it comes out of very, very benevolent thoughts of I don't want my child to, to be lost. And in the end, the very last verse of this section, 74, it says, but little children sanctified through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And this is what the scriptures mean. And I love how the, the Lord is so concise there. He's like, this is kind of confusing that this happens and that this is kind of what the Jews thought about circumcision and traditions and contention and united to an unbeliever and all that. This is what the scriptures mean. Little children are holy, being sanctified in the atonement of Jesus Christ. And we know now through modern revelation that the age of accountability is age eight. All that means is that by age eight, it's most likely that kids will know right from wrong enough to be able to make decisions uh, on their own and to decide to be baptized or not. And also to understand the complexities of what's right and what's wrong. And I think adults struggle with that sometimes too. There's always kind of ethical dilemmas of what's the right thing to do here, what's right, what's wrong. But at age eight, most children kind of get the concept of I've been told not to do this and I shouldn't do it. Instead of a, a small child where you tell them no and they they might obey just because they're afraid of what might happen, but they don't really know why it's wrong. Yeah. Uh, an eight-year-old by that time kind of understands the why. I don't put my finger in the light socket because, you know, <laughs> that's going to be bad. And maybe a seven-year-old can too, but it's just to establish a, a set age that at this point, most kids understand it. Yeah. It's it's funny because I, I used to struggle with the age of eight. I thought it was too young. Then I thought... But my mind has shifted because I think it's a appropriate age to know good and bad. But it's also a very appropriate age to begin building patterns of positive behavior or like good habits mm-hmm. where you now can learn to overcome things and test. You're, you're going to be heading into teenage years where you want to test every boundary. Well, that's OK and that's expected. But now you can do it within the with the framework that you want to choose good. You want to do what's right. I find um, one of the consequences of sin is that it not only offends the spirit, but continuous sin changes our character. It it changes who we are to the point where we we it kind of knows our conscience. You know, so. Yes, we are here to experiment and test the waters and, and, and feel the light socket every now and then, right? But we also, there's a difference between scraping our knees and jumping off a cliff. Like, and, right. and that's the same sense in spiritual aspects. You know, the Lord, the, he created the family unit to be like a safe haven of experimentation. And and sometimes, you know, the what, the world or the natural man or Satan wants to try to get us to do is, oh, well, if the atonement is infinite, then just, just go, just let it go, run out the cord, do whatever you want. 
and you'll be all right. You know, there, there's like different temptations that creep up, and and it's so important to know that 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 has an effect. You don't want to go so far that it becomes so difficult. And then, like you said, with the infant baptism, and all, I, I just think you imagine yourself and what you want for your kids. And you realize, well, there's a father in heaven that also wants what's best for us. But he won't sacrifice that for our opportunity to grow and learn for ourselves. And so, you know, I, I have little panic attacks sometimes when I think about my kids and the things that they're going to face and how they'll navigate the world. And then at some point, they, they have to choose for themselves, you know. Yeah, and I think when you when we talk about age of accountability and all that some of that is just the natural development of the brain and of children understanding and their experiences they've had but there's a lot of that that also depends on like parents teaching those correct principles having a conversation about what's right and what's wrong and what consequences are and maybe saying no you can't do that because you made poor decisions and this is this is a consequence of the poor decisions you made and kind of establishing that even before it matters, before age eight, so that when they reach that age, they are aware of what all of that means and what consequences are. And of course, they're going to continue to develop that understanding as they get older. But if you just kind of expect it to happen without ever having those conversations and saying, you can choose this or you can choose that. And if you choose this, then you can't do these things, you know. There, That's a good point, because I, I think we we have a different kind of pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Besides COVID, there, there seems to be a pandemic of individuals not accepting or not wanting the consequences for one a, a certain kind of action. Yeah. They want to change the consequence to be a different. Or, you know, it gets a little bit into this when, when they talk about the idler in Zion. You know, and, and you get to the bottom of that, what is an idler? It's a person who wants to take benefit of the group at the expense of not contributing to it or themselves or, or contributing. And there's a difference between individuals who need help and are doing everything they can or don't know how. And if you teach them, they can do things. That's a different thing than that someone who's capable, knowledgeable, but it's like, oh, I'm just, you'll take care of me. Don't, won't you, Daniel? Thanks. But <laughs> if you're a true friend, you would, right? That's an interesting thing because I, I think consequences is something the Lord is trying to teach us but lets us experience the consequences of our actions. And and it's it's a difficult thing because I, I you know, you, you talk to your kids and just it begins very simple. Like at home, you start learning, well, if I don't clean my room, this happens. If I don't shower every day, then you get gross. And then you even can get sick, you know, if, you know, how you treat people, if if you just, you know, treat them bad, then don't be mad when there's no one that wants to play with you, you know, there, yeah. there's just like little tiny things. But then as adults, you get older, and the line of consequences can get a little bit more complicated. But in essence, it's almost the same, you know, and I've met individuals who I really, unfortunately, I question their ability to grasp the consequences of their actions. And they sit there in like, it's almost like they make bad decision and nothing good happens and like they double down on it and then they they their anger and disappointment in life and the world and then god continues to grow and it's like i don't know that this has much to do with those things as much as you have haven't noticed 
the consequences? Well, I think that a lot of times the reason that the concept of consequences is so important, it helps you avoid regret. Because when you go into a decision, knowing what possible consequences might be, even if you don't know exactly what they are or what the long term will be, if you know, if I do this, I'm missing out on that. It's an economics term, opportunity cost. If I decide to go to the amusement park all day, then I can't go swimming. I've lost that opportunity. And if I go swimming all day, I might not get to go to the amusement park. Okay, well, which one are you going to choose? And then if I go to the amusement park, I can't sit there and be like, oh, I regret not going swimming. You knew what you were getting into. You knew that by committing to that, that those were going to be the consequences. And I think that the Lord really wants us to understand when you're approaching decisions, don't make decisions on your own. Seek out guidance. Seek out the Spirit. And sometimes it will be, eh, I don't care if you go to the amusement park or go swimming, go have fun. That's fine either way. And sometimes he might be, you know what? I want you to be at the pool. But, you know, it's it's one of those things where the consequences of our decisions matter. And when you are aware and when you're cognizant of that type of stuff, you won't have as much regret about the decisions you make. You'll yeah. be able to look back and say, yeah, I didn't go swimming, but I knew that it was going to be a hot day and that I was going to have a lot of fun on roller coasters instead. I, I don't regret my decision. I knew I knew what was at stake. Well, it's interesting because once you figure out what the consequences to actions are, then you can pick your consequence yeah. by selecting your actions. I, I, it's kind of funny, this topic, <laughs> because it might not have very much to do with this lesson. <laughs> but But I think it's, I don't know, it's a growth thing. I mean, the Lord is trying to teach his saints and organize them, you know, and you're seeing that a different, there's different needs that arise for the church that the prophet is, I mean, I can't imagine being Joseph Smith because he's kind of experiencing everything as a prophet and a leader at, for the first time, you know, during these revelations, like, hey, you need to stop, go address this issue, this Ezra Booth, you, know? Ezra Booth, you need to yeah. go address this issue. Uh, other scenarios, it's like, hey, good thing you asked. Let me tell you about this, you know. <laughs> um, but now we look at our church, and uh, there's continuous revelation. But we also have a solid base of principles and policies that the church has adopted because of these things, the, these revelations and these errors. I, I, I often ask myself, is the church perfect? And I would say no. I know people say the church is perfect. It's just people that are. And I'm like, that makes no sense to me. I would say the church is not perfect. Jesus Christ is perfect. His roadmap and his patterns are perfect. Now, we can cloud all that based on our own agency and problems. And even people that are leaders of the church can fall away and do bad things or not. Or instead of choosing A, they choose B. And they should have chose you know, C and they chose D. And that's okay. The part that is perfect is that if everyone does the best they can, your enemies shall have no advantage over you. There shall be no weapon that shall triumph over you. Um, and in this journey of mortality, of course, there's going to be disappointments. There's there there wouldn't be a commandment to forgive without the need to have to forgive. You know, and that need will not be taken away as righteous as you are. Because we have to experience that. We have to learn that principle. And just for every good virtue, there is a vice. 
and you cannot master a virtue without knowing and, and being exposed to that vice. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the beauty of this life where we are no longer in the Garden of Eden. We're out where things happen by the sweat of our brow and thorns are present. You know, it's not the easiest road, you know. Anyway, that's a word rambling. But in section 75, I like this one. This one's pretty cool. There's quite a bit of missionary calls handing out left and right. <laughs> yeah. Including one to William E. McClellan, who it's interesting because in verse 6, it says, I revoke the commission which I gave unto him to go into the eastern countries. And I give unto him a new commission and a new commandment in which I, the Lord, chasten him for the murmurings of his heart. And he sinned. Nevertheless, I forgive him and say unto him again, go ye into the south countries. I don't know uh, what the nature of those murmurings were. I don't know if he's like, I don't want to go into the eastern countries. I don't know what his what his murmurings were. But what I what I find most interesting about that is he still had a willingness to serve. And I think the Lord saying, look, you murmured and you sinned, but you've also repented and you're also still called to do this. And I think a lot of times when you when you see especially young men and women who are at the point of mission age and maybe they think, you know, I, I've done a couple of things that maybe I shouldn't feel super proud of. Maybe missions aren't for me or whatever. Uh, this is an example of somebody, regardless of how severe his sin was or not severe, he still got the opportunity to go and serve. It changed his mission call. And it's not that going to the South countries was any, you know, softer of a mission or easier than going to the Eastern countries, which, by the way, we're still in the United States. He's not actually leaving anywhere. He's going to, like, the East Coast or the Southern states. That's what it's referring to. But what it is is the opportunity was not lost just because he murmured and sinned. He had the opportunity to still serve. And I think that that's a really good lesson for us to learn from this, that yeah, you may not be super pleased with something, or you may have done something that you think might not make it so you can serve. But if you're willing, you can find a way, and the Lord will call you anyway. Yeah, I like um, verse 20, where where it kind of tells them, no, well, in verse 18, we can start there, where I commanded go, I commanded them going from house to house, from village to village, to cities, whatsoever house you enter, and they receive you, leave your blessing upon that house. Whatsoever house ye enter and they receive you not, you shall depart speedily from that house and shake the dust off from your feet as a testimony against them. So this is interesting because <laughs> this is a weird mission story time. <laughs> we had a, a branch president in part of my mission who wanted to, he would always bring in the missionaries and tell them, this is how you should do missionary work. You should knock on the door. If they receive you, leave a blessing. As you bless the house, you'll know if they're ready for baptism and by the way, be sure they have a car because we don't have people to pick people up. And it was just kind of so quirky. <laughs> we're like, well, we have preached my gospel. This is how we're supposed to do it. You know, and he was very adamant that that was the way because of these scriptures. That That's that's the way. Um, obviously, it's not. We talked to mission president and you know, it's not the way. Right. And we were learning and we were young elders and stuff, you know. But um, it's funny because, you know, I he always quoted those scriptures, but then he never continue to in the reading and explaining the rest of it in verse 21 and 22 where it says and you should be filled with joy and gladness and you, you know this that the day of judgment you shall be judges of that house and condemn them and it shall be more tolerable for the heathen of the day 
in the day of the judgment than for that house. Wherefore, gird up your loins and be faithful, and you shall overcome all things. And for me, when I read the next part, I, I didn't take it as we're going to be judges and everyone that turns us down as missionaries, you're going to be uh, we're coming for you, right? No, it was more like it's important for people to have the opportunity to listen, to hear the gospel. And it's equally important for them to have the freedom to say no. This yeah. isn't for me, you know? And that's where I I think I, oftentimes as members, we get filled with this desire to bring the work of the Lord forward and to build Zion and to, yes, heaven on earth, we can do it. But the Lord is quickly telling us that there will be houses that receive you and houses that don't. And don't be bummed out because it's important for those people to receive the opportunity. And if they have been given an opportunity, it will be, the you know, those heathens who you think are pagans and worship mm-hmm. false idols and you, you don't like them. It will actually be better for them than for those who had the opportunity and chose not to take it, you know. Right. And likewise, you know, I, I kind of invert that to myself and I say, what are the things that I have opportunity that I should be taken advantage of, that I cannot claim, oh, I just don't know anymore. I'd like to be ignorant again. No, it doesn't work that way. Once, it's like knowledge is a is a blessing, but if you want to plea ignorance when you know better, then it's like a double curse, you know, type of thing. <laughs> it's like it's worse for you, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really cool, too, how it's like the Lord continues to show us, it seems, lesson after lesson, how incredibly important agency is. How incredibly important the freedom to choose right and wrong, including choosing wrong. And this is a perfect example of that. And yeah, maybe he can say, hey, you were the missionaries that were there. What did they say to you? And be like, well, they didn't let us in. And that's that, you know, and then he can say, "Okay, well, that's between me and them now. Just like we were saying before, it's not a thing where you're going to be like, no, they chased us away and I condemn them. That's not your job. That's not your job. I think, yeah. Like I ask myself, why would this be put in here? And I think it's because we we often are grateful for the successes, but we should not, what's it called, not cast away failure because you have the Lord knows it's part of it, the plan that there are people that are not going to accept it. And they may they may have to hear it 30 times. And you only got there on the third. And so <laughs> don't give up. You're still laying a good foundation. You know, these things are accounted for. Every good thing is accounted for, and every not good thing is also accounted for. Don't give up. Keep going. And, and that's the thing is, you know, I, I was a big I, – I love the area book on my mission. And I got a lot of success from the area book. And I often would think, man, I wonder with these missionaries, the first ones that were like, oh, these people, man, just stick them in the area book, put them in the back. And I would go, I'd rummage here because I'm like, this is like free work, free <laughs> contacts, and you can try again. And and that's the thing is, not, I, I don't know, I just, we we, we kind of want like the, the Hollywood movie, Hallmark movie, <laughs> EFY song scenario, you know, with. <laughs> It's like I was walking down the street and, you know, there they are. And they said yes right away. You know, you know we had one scenario kind of like that. 
where we were tracking and we tracked into a family who had was on vacation and for some reason they were driving and they ran across um, Liberty Jail, not Liberty Jail, uh, Carthage. Mm. And they, they read the thing about the Prophet Joseph Smith and then they thought it was interesting. They get home from their vacation and like the next day we knock on their door and it was like, go figure. And they turned us down. I put them in the area book. But you look at that example where look at them from their point of view, they go and they are going on a field trip or, or a vacation. They run across the Prophet Joseph and maybe they feel something. And then we knock on their door the next day and they they're being called again. They're, they're being asked, hey, do you want to know about this? But ultimately, they have their agency to say, you know what, not right now. But we either built upon that and it's up to them. You know, and we'll see what happens. You know, you never know. Well, I guess what I'm trying to get out is we we're so dismissive of failure <laughs> that we don't understand that there's failure is not what we think it is. Well, and this this scripture should be really comforting to every missionary or every person who's ever been rejected a bunch and bunch and bunch of times. I mean, there are days in my mission when we didn't have a lot going on. And we would knock on doors all day and not teach a single lesson. And it was discouraging to a point because it was like, what are we doing? You know, like, (laughs) this is not working and no one's giving us referrals. And what are we doing wrong? And the Lord's saying you should be filled with joy and gladness. And he's not saying you should be filled with joy and gladness because you get to condemn these people. Right. That's not what he's saying. It's in the same verse, but it's separated by by a semicolon. You should be filled with joy and gladness. Don't let that take you over. Don't let that dis- the, the rejection discourage you. But also know this, right? I will take care of them. They will be judged for not, for not accepting the gospel when they were given the opportunity. But that's not saying you should feel joy and gladness because they're going to be condemned, right? <laughs> it's just saying, like, don't let that take you down. Don't let that ruin your attitude and the message that you're sharing. If we want to play the condemn game... <laughs> those who have made covenants if if that's the lens we want to look at right falling short and not doing what's right we would all be done for you know what i right. mean right but we're given this thing called a renewal of covenants <laughs> for a reason because we we are it's not like we're expected but the lord knows us where he says you know in order for us to develop we have to train ourselves at this repentance skill and, and learning how to be in the right mindset and change our heart and look at. It's funny because there are things that I never felt bad about until one day I did. There are habits that I was totally fine with and I never felt until one day I didn't feel good about it anymore. And I wonder why in in one, I don't feel much guilt because when I know better, I try to do better. And sometimes that know better comes at different times for everybody. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents 
and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.